Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Hebrews 11, beginning in the 23rd verse. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, rather, to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover, and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as by dry land which the Egyptians, assaying to do, were drowned. We come today to consider again Moses, a mighty man of faith. And the inspired writer has moved in this chronological review of the life of faith, from the book of Genesis, where we've been in the previous examples he cited, now to the book of Exodus. You know, he's talked about Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham. Each of these are consecutively mentioned in the book of Genesis as people of faith. Now he comes to the book of Exodus, and he addresses the familiar and important story of Moses, And it's a story that's reiterated not only in the book of Exodus, but in Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's sermon, he talks at length about Moses, the man of God. Now, the point of the reading this morning is simply this. Living by faith involves making landmark, life-defining choices and decisions. I'm sure each of you have experienced approaching a crossroads, an intersection, in which you were faced with the choice, should I go this direction or that? Crossroads are familiar to us in navigation, are they not? And I suggest that that's a good metaphor for many points in our lives. Each of us will reach a turning point in our lives, uh, an opportunity to make a choice. There are many crossroads moments, a point at which a decision must be made where you will go to school when you graduate, or if you will go to school, that's a crossroads decision. Whom to marry, a crossroads decision. A career path, purchasing a home, having a child. Each of these are decisions, choices. And the child of God should always ask the question, Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? Seeking God's will, God's guidance, the Lord's favor in the decisions that we make. But I suggest no crossroads decision, no choice is more important in life than the one that Moses made on this occasion, the choice to follow the Lord by identifying himself with the people of God rather than to enjoy the treasures of Egypt. 
Now, I believe that the child of God's will, his capacity for decision-making, is involved in the life of discipleship. If you're going to be faithful to Jesus Christ, it's going to require a choice on your part. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if any man will be my disciple, notice, if a man will be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. The will is involved. Your decision is important in following Christ. Now, of course, I believe, I hope you share this, that eternal salvation does not depend upon man's will, on your choice, but it depends on God's will alone. It's the divine choice that determines destiny. We saw that in the previous chapter, Hebrews 10.10, talking about the will of God, by the which will. Which will? God's will. By the which will we are sanctified, by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's the will of God that is determinative of destiny. Ephesians 1.4 says, According as he hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's the doctrine of sovereign election. And who made the choice? God did. Before time began, God chose a people as his own. A people as innumerable as the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. A vast host. God chose them and wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life. God's choice, his sovereign choice, is what determines your destiny. You see, if it was our choice, we would have never chosen the Lord because of our depravity. I like the words of the hymn writer, O Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. This heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. You know, that's a fact. If heaven depended on people choosing God, heaven would be empty and a thousand hells would be filled to capacity. But God takes the initiative. That's what grace is all about. That God moves toward man in his helpless state and seeing his fallen condition before the morning of time, God purposed to choose a vast host as his own. And Jesus came to die for them on the cross. You see, our choice does not determine whether or not we go to heaven. And I'm glad because I have trouble making decisions at a very minute level, don't you? <laughs> I have trouble deciding where we're going to eat lunch. Have you ever had this conversation in your car? Where do you want to eat today? No, you choose, okay? Then you make a choice and they say, I didn't want to eat here. <laughs> it's hard to make decisions, isn't it? Even about the most minor things. And if it came to the fact that your choice determined whether you were going to heaven or not, I'll tell you, in your fallen condition, you never would have chosen the Lord because your heart is antagonistic toward God first and foremost. I'm glad to tell you that his sovereign will, not your fickle, fallible will, but the sovereign will of God is what determines destiny. But the life of Christian discipleship does require you and me to make a choice. Whether I'm going to follow Jesus in this life or not, whether I'm going to be a disciple, whether I'm going to be in the church, the Lord's not going to make that choice for you and for me. In fact, Joshua 24, 15 says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Now, I think it's significant he didn't say choose whether you're going to be a child of God. A child doesn't choose his parents. 
but choose whether you're going to serve the God who loved you or not. We know, don't we, that after a person's born again, they have two natures. And it's possible that you could serve yourself and serve the world. But my beloved, may I say that new nature, the gospel appeals to the new you that's given by the work of the Spirit in regeneration and says, choose to serve the Lord. And he says, if you're going to serve the idols, one is just as bad as another. It doesn't really matter whether the gods of your fathers on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But he said, as for me and my house, Joshua said, we will serve the Lord. I like how he takes the initiative as the leader of his home. My family and I are going to follow Jesus, follow the Lord. That's a choice that you and I must make. We saw that in a verse that I really just sort of skimmed over previously in Hebrews 11, verse 15. And truly, if they, that is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if they had been mindful of that country from which they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. You know what that verse is teaching? It's teaching that God was not forcing them to live a certain way. If they had been mindful, you see, here's the key to that verse, what they were thinking about. Their thoughts were focused on the Lord. Their thoughts were focused on serving him, and that's why they were content to live as pilgrims. But if they had been mindful, if they had been thinking about the world, then God wouldn't have forced them to live the life of a pilgrim. They could have gone back. He says, but now they desire a better country. These are people who are headed for home. They're on pilgrimage, you see. That's the thought. You must make a choice. God is not going to pick you up by the hair of the head and force you to follow him. Now, he'll make you wish you had followed him, but he's not going to do it for you. In other words, primitive Baptists believe in human responsibility. Somebody says, you preach divine sovereignty to the point that you neglect human responsibility. Well, it's important to rightly divide the word of truth. So far as your eternal salvation is concerned, you were dead. You couldn't have chosen God. Had he not had mercy upon you, then there would be no hope for you and me. But after you're made alive, you're given a will, a capacity for action. Philippians 2.13 says, he works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That capacity for action, that capacity to make decisions needs now to be activated and the Lord calls upon you and me to make a choice in our life like the popular Christian song, I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm going to live like a believer. Turn my back on the deceiver. I'm going to live what I believe. Have you ever made that decision? And by the way, that's a decision you need to make every day that you wake up. You see, I made that decision back in 1976 when I united with the church. I decided to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. But may I say, Jesus said, if a man will deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Every day I have to say no to self and yes to him. Every day I have to work it out and say, now I belong to the Lord. I'm a child of God and I profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So today I need to crucify the flesh and follow his word, follow Jesus, walk in his footsteps. Every day I have to die out to self and follow him. And you do too. That's a choice that we must make. But it begins with this initial choice. And we see that in Moses' case. Moses, when he came to years, says the text, 
refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. There came a point in his life when Moses said, I can't be a part of the Egyptian palace anymore. That's not truly who I am. I am a Hebrew. And he chose rather, notice he made a choice, to suffer affliction with God's people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. What I'm saying this morning is there are two paths that a regenerate person may travel in his or her life. Proverbs puts it like this, there is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's Proverbs 16:25. The other verse is Proverbs 15:24. The way of life is above to the wise, that he may depart from hell beneath. There's a way that seems right, but it leads to disaster. But the way of life is from above. It's following the Lord, following his word. Jesus puts it like this in Matthew 7:13. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads unto life, and few there be that find it. But wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Here's the question this morning. Which path are you traveling? You young people here today, I ask you, are you walking with the crowd? Are you living your life just like everybody else around you lives it? Wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Now, where does that path end up? It ends up with unhappiness. It ends up in turmoil. It ends up in disaster. It leads to destruction. Many are following the broad way. That's the path of popular opinion. And it's an easy way because you're going with the crowd. But straight is the gate. Now, that word straight is S-T-R-A-I-T. It's not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T doesn't mean straight as opposed to crooked. The word straight here means difficult. Straight is the gate. That is, it's a cramped place, hard to get in this entrance. Straight is the gate. Narrow is the way. You ever seen some of these paths on a cliff side, a mountainside? You know, bends around the mountain and you think, whoo boy, if you've got a fear of heights like I do, <laughs> you can't even hardly look at a picture like that, much less be on one in person. Just the least little error would plunge me over the side. Narrow is the way that leads to life. You see, this is the path. And few there be that fight. The minority is living to please God. That's what I'm saying. Now, how do you reconcile that verse with the many verses that say, In my Father's house are many mansions. I came to give my life a ransom for many. You reconcile it like this. God has a big family. Jesus died for a multitude. The elect are a people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. But as far as living to please God, living under the lordship of Christ, living to serve him and to glorify him, walking according to the word of God, just a few, my friends, the minority is doing that. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 is not talking about eternal salvation. It's talking about discipleship. That whole Sermon on the Mount is a sermon delivered to Jesus' disciples. That's what the first verse of it says. His disciples came unto him, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's preaching the message to his disciples about what it means to live as a Christian. Live as a Christian. Therefore, here's the message that I'm preaching this morning. Same message Moses preached in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Talked about Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. One was a mountain of cursing, the other was a mountain of blessing. 
And Moses said to the people, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. Now I'm not only going to tell you you've got a choice to make, but I'm going to give you a clue. I'm going to try to prompt you to make the right choice. Choose life that thou and thy seed may live. I would say to everyone here this morning, brethren, you have a choice to make as to how you're going to live your life. I hope that you will choose wisely, that you'll choose life, that you'll follow Jesus. Moses came to a point in his life when he had to make this choice. Before we look at his choice, though, notice the text speaks of the choice his parents faced. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Now, Moses' parents are named in the book of Exodus. His dad's name was Amram. His mother's name was Jochebed. And when Moses was born, his parents made a choice to hide him for three months because they saw he was a proper child. The choice that they faced was should we obey the king's edict or refuse to comply with it now here's the backstory you probably know it the pharaoh operated a totalitarian regime and he had implemented a program of ethnic cleansing because the hebrews who had lived in egypt for almost 400 years were growing to the point that they posed a threat to the egyptian empire so he implements this infanticide campaign by commanding the Hebrew midwives that when the Hebrew women are about to give birth while they're in labor and delivery, you're to abort the child. And if you fail to slay the child and it's actually born, then you're to cast it into the Nile River. Well, Moses came along at about this time and it says that when he was born, his parents hid him for three months. I want to say that there were three fiery females in Moses' story that practiced radical resistance to the regime. And the first are these Hebrew midwives. They told Pharaoh that the Hebrew women are lively, and by the time we get there, they've already delivered. And it says the midwives feared God. You say, well, they lied about that. Not necessarily. It's very possible that they were lively and that they did deliver by the time they got there. But they refused to comply because it was an unjust law. It was an unjust law. Now, for the most part, Christians should be the best citizens around. We should be obedient to magistrates and to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. We should be model citizens, peace-loving people. But I'll tell you that sometimes government oversteps its bounds, and it presumes to operate in a realm that only God has the right to operate in. And when government tries to control your conscience, or it commands you to do something that is sinful and evil and wrong, it is our duty at that time to say we must obey God rather than men. And that's what the Hebrew midwives did when they feared God. Now, why did these fiery midwives, these feisty midwives, refuse to comply with the king's decree? Because they feared God. You see, God was real to them, and they took him seriously. So they did not comply because they feared God. Then the second feisty female was Pharaoh's daughter. Moses' mother, after hiding him three months, saw that he couldn't be hidden anymore. So she made an ark of bulrushes. She took plants from the riverside and wove them into a basket, and she pitched it within and without with slime to make it waterproof. 
Once it had dried, she put the baby in the basket and set that little basket at the banks of the Nile River. You know, I mean, he would have been slain once they found out that he was alive. They would have killed him anyway, so at least this is an opportunity. And about the time that the basket has made its way down the river just a bit, Pharaoh's daughter comes down with her maidens to bathe. And she spies this unique-looking structure, this ark, this basket, and she sends her maid to fetch it. And when they bring it to her, she opens the lid, and it says, the babe wept. She saw the little baby, and the babe wept. She didn't know what was inside until she opened the lid. It's a live Hebrew baby. And she, Pharaoh's own daughter, he's the one who gave the decree to kill the babies, but she spares Moses, the baby, alive because of that natural motherly yearning. The babe wept. God tendered a hard heart with a baby's tears. The Bible doesn't tell us all of the conversations that probably took place when they said, where'd you get a baby? You know, that could have happened. We'll leave it to the movie makers to fill in the details, okay? But we know the basic facts, don't we? That uh, she had a child now and raised that child as her own. By the way, you remember the story? Moses' sister Miriam had been sent by mom to watch the basket as it floated. She was there to bring back a report of what happened. And when Pharaoh's daughter found it, she said, well, look, here's a baby. Miriam speaks up and says, "Uh, do you want me to fetch one of the Hebrew women to come nurse the child? And Pharaoh's daughter said, well, I sure can. That's a good idea. And she went and she got Moses' own mother, Jochebed, who came and was hired by Pharaoh's daughter and paid wages for nursing her own baby until the child was weaned. I don't know how much longer that was, but you talk about God's sovereign providence. In fact, the sovereignty of God is woven through this entire story. How that the Lord worked in the hearts of the midwives. He worked in the case of uh, protecting the child. And that now Moses' own mother is paid to nurse her own child. Only God could arrange something that wonderful. What a wonderful account that is. And then Jochebed, she spared the child. The midwives did because they feared God. Pharaoh's daughter did because of a natural motherly yearning. But Moses' mother did because of faith in God, says the text. By faith, they hid him three months when they saw he was a proper child. Now, that word proper is interesting. Stephen uses the word fair in his description of it in Acts 7. The Greek word there is connected to the world of art. And it means something that's aesthetically beautiful. Now, every parent thinks their child's beautiful. But there was something about Moses that was, like an artist would say, it's aesthetically beautiful. The word is used to speak of something that has symmetry, balance, elegance. There's something about Moses that was unique. And I suggest that even this is the providence of God, that he is working to let them know somehow that this child is destined for greatness. This child is special. And they decide not to comply but to hide the baby. You know, in a day and age in which human life is cheap like it was then, it's a great act of faith to refuse to comply with the government, to practice civil disobedience. Moses' parents, it says, they were not afraid is verse 23 of the king's commandment. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, not afraid. You'll see it again in Moses himself. He was not afraid. He did not fear 
the king's repercussion. He did not fear. They were not afraid. He did not fear. By the way, wherever you find true faith in God, you'll find people who are able to control their fear. So many people in our world are ruled by fear. The fear of man brings a snare, says Proverbs 29, 25. So many people are afraid of the unknown. We've seen it even in our culture. And I know that there are many dangerous things in our world. Things that we need to certainly be wise about. We shouldn't be foolhardy. But at the same time, my beloved, we cannot live our lives controlled by fear of what might happen. And the way to solve your fear is to trust in God. Psalm 56, 3 is a good verse to remember. What time I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. My beloved, at the moment when you're afraid of what might happen, just remind yourself of who your God is. Turn it over to Him in prayer and put your trust in a God who does all things well. In other words, don't allow the fear of man to control you. Jesus said, fear not them which can kill the body, but they can't touch your soul. I want to tell you, if we fear God, if He's real to us, then we don't have occasion to fear anything else in our lives. That's the only legitimate healthy fear that there is. So Moses' parents, by faith, spared his life. Let's look at Moses' choices now. And you'll notice three verbs in the reading. He refused, that's number one, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, verse 24. He refused, verb number one, verse 25. He chose, rather, he made a choice. And then verse 27, by faith he forsook. Egypt. He refused, he chose, he forsook. These are his decisions. Now how old is he when he's making these choices? At what age does he face these crossroads? Will I continue to be Pharaoh's grandson? Will I continue to live in the palace? Will I continue my path to the throne of Egypt? Or will I go down there and make bricks without straw and wear the garments of a Hebrew slave? At what age was he when he faced this choice? According to Acts 7.23, he was 40 years old. 40 years old. For 40 years he had lived in Egypt. For 40 years his parents had seen him flourish and grow and mature under the tutelage of uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Claimed as her son, her adopted son. She found him and she kept him behind her keepers. And she raised him. And after his mother had weaned him, they probably had very little, if any, contact with him. They had to watch their son grow up from a distance, but they were just thankful he had lived, you see. But imagine how they yearned for him to realize who he was, how they had prayed. If you're a parent and you have a teenager or a child that you're concerned about, and every parent that I've ever known passes through these experiences, and you say, Lord, uh, Lord please help them to see the right way. Lord, save them from making a wreck of their lives. Save them from going down the path that leads to destruction. Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts. Now we know that we can't help the Lord regenerate them, but yet at the same time we pray for them and we pray that God would bring them to the right path and that his will would be done in their lives. I know that yearning as a father for my children and I'm sure many of you know it as well. How these parents had to exercise faith in God. Moses' parents had faith. And I'll tell you, they must have been very happy when the day came that Moses realized who he truly was. Now, they may not have known exactly what was going on in his heart at that age, 
But there came a point where he made a break. Pharaoh's daughter said one day, Son, would you come into the adjacent room, please? And Moses came in and he said, uh, I don't mean any disrespect, and you've been very good to me, but you called me son. And um, really, although I owe you so much, yet you're really not my mom. There came a point where he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm a Hebrew. And he chose rather. He refused. He said no. He rejected the privileges that were rightfully his. Now you say, Brother Mike, that is not very smart. I mean, he was set up for life. He was in line to the throne when Pharaoh died. He could have been, possibly would have been, the next Pharaoh. He could have lived in opulence and extravagance the rest of his days. He could have lived a life of ease and luxury. Do you mean he gave all of that up? I hope he had a better deal. You know, somebody says, uh, you can have this, this is a great deal, or you can have a better deal. Which one do you, you know, we give up the good for the better, right? Moses gave up the best for what appears to be the very worst. He gave up the palace for the prison camp. He gave up wealth and opulence and extravagance for poverty and slavery. He gave up authority and power in his life as the ruler for slavery and want. He gave up prestige for humiliation, the palace for a tent, pleasure for hardship, certainty for uncertainty. He gave up popularity for obscurity. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Rather, he chose. He said no to the palace. He said yes to the people of God. He chose rather to suffer. Uh, chose to suffer? <laughs> you scratch your head, I scratch mine. We say, this doesn't make any sense. And by the way, the life of faith doesn't make any sense to the typical worldly way of thinking. It is very strange. They think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. I have to tell you, my friends, whatever pride he might have had, he humbled himself, didn't he? Whatever pride he might have had as Pharaoh's grandson, watching over these slaves working in the, on the pyramids, Moses gave it all up and he said, I want to be one of you. I want to identify my, because that's who I truly am. You see, one reason people don't make the right choices in life is they don't realize who they really are. Knowing who you are, knowing your identity, is so vitally important to being able to make the right choices in life. Just because Moses left the palace for the prison camp doesn't mean, dear friends, that everybody will, is called to leave that. You know, there are people in the Bible who maintained positions in power, who maintained positions of influence even though they were following God. You may remember Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt, right? Second in command of Pharaoh. Obadiah was in King Ahab's court. Daniel was in Nebuchadnezzar's court. It's not necessarily God's will for everybody that's in a position of leadership. You say a Christian should never be in politics. Well, if we didn't have some people of conviction and conscience in high places like that, then we would be in worse shape than we are right now. We need people to be in 
positions of influence if God has called them to such. But I'm telling you for the most part, every one of us is going to have to realize who we really are at a certain point in life and say there is a people that although they're not popular and they're not held in high esteem by the world, they're not publicly traded, their name is not in lights, they're looked on as irrelevant, yet that's what I believe. These are the people who sing my songs. They know my story. Their experience resonates with mine. They love the same Christ that I love. Moses made that decision. He came to a point where he said, no, I'm not going to be rich and famous. I'm going to be a Hebrew because that's who I truly am. Based on his identity, he made the choice. And he forsook Egypt, says verse 27, by faith. Faith at the crossroads. Which choice is he going to make? Well, he's not going to continue on the path that he started, the path to prosperity. He's going to choose to suffer. He made a physical, not just an ideological or philosophical break with his past. And it says he did this. He forsook Egypt, not fearing. Now, remember when we saw that expression that his parents were not afraid of the king's commandment? Verse 27 says, not fearing the wrath of the king. Moses was not afraid either. Now, he might have reasoned he could have done more good for the Hebrews by remaining involved in the palace, but he chose instead to identify himself with the despised people of God, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You know, there's a hymn in our hymn book, number 18, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. And a verse in that hymn says, for thee all the follies of sin I resign. We sing that, but follies was not the original word of the author of that hymn. You may know that he originally wrote, for thee all the pleasures of sin. You say, why did they change it? Well, probably some person had good intentions. They thought, we don't want our children thinking that sin is pleasurable, so we'll just sing all the follies of sin. But you know, he took that expression from this verse. The pleasures of sin. Sin does have a pleasure, but it's only temporary. And Moses refused the pleasures of sin for a season. And instead, he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. Sin does give you momentary pleasure, but long-term pain. Long-term pain. You say, Brother Mike, how did he do all of this? He reasoned. Notice these two words. He did all of this. He made these choices, esteeming there's the first word, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches. He made a valued judgment. You ever seen that show on TV called The Antique Roadshow? Where, uh, you know, people bring their curios and their old items before an appraiser and he looks at it and they say, you know, I was told down at the pawn shop this is worth maybe $3. He looks at it, he said, this is an original. It's worth $3,000. Wow, I have something that's more valuable than I thought. You know, you can't just tell by looking on the surface the value of something, can you? A book is not judged well by its cover. And when some people look at Moses' choice, they say, you really made a bad deal there, Moses. That's not a good decision. But you see, he made this choice because he made a value judgment that what other people saw as being insignificant, he esteemed the reproaches of Christ greater riches than all the treasures in Egypt. 
Now, Egypt, my beloved, was a very wealthy place. In fact, it's mind-boggling, the wealth that they had in Egypt. But Moses said, the treasures of Christ. And notice how the Holy Spirit uses the word Christ here, esteeming the reproach of Christ. Christ hasn't come and wouldn't come for 1,500 years. The fact that the Holy Spirit inspires the apostle to use the reference to Christ when speaking about this Old Testament prophet's experience teaches us the principle of continuity between the Testaments. That is, even though there's a difference in the law and the gospel, I want to tell you the Bible is really a book of one story. It's all about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament sees him in prospect, the New Testament in retrospect. The Old Testament points to him, the New Testament proclaims him as a reality. Moses, my beloved, was looking forward to the gospel blessings that would come to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he said, that's more valuable to me than all the treasures of this world. I want to ask you, can you make a value judgment like that? Is there anybody here today who could say with the hymn writer, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. You say, not me, preacher. I want silver and gold. That's what I want. The problem with that is people try to take it from you, number one. And secondly, moth and rust corrupts it. I want to ask you today, can you say, I'd rather have Jesus, for here's a treasure that will never lose its value, than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. Listen to this. He's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out of the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus... And let him lead than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. How did Moses give all of this up for something that the world says is very insignificant and crude and crass and vulgar? He did it because he reasoned. He esteemed that the riches of Christ, the treasures of Christ, are so much more valuable than all the treasures of this world. Like Paul did in Philippians 3 when he said, although I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as touching the law and blameless, he says, I count it all but loss. Talk about a lucrative future awaiting him. Paul could have been headed for stardom in the Jewish economy, but he said, I gave it all up. I counted it all but loss and do count it but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him. What a choice. Moses did all of this because he had respect under the recompense of the reward. You've heard that word back in Hebrews 11, verse 6. God is a rewarder. Back in chapter 10, when he says, cast not away your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. I want to tell you, God's a great paymaster. Christ is a liberal paymaster. And those who serve him, my friends, will not be left high and dry. He'll take care of you. And the reward of his presence is worth all that you've given up. In fact, you won't even miss it anymore to know that Jesus Christ is yours and that you are his forever. He did all of this esteeming and he did all of this as the text, seeing him who's invisible. I want to ask you, isn't that a paradox? Can you see something that's invisible? 
not with your natural eyes, but you can with the eye of faith. You see, God is not visible to my natural eyes today. I can't see Jesus Christ on the right hand of the Father. But by faith, through the word, I see the one, he's real to me. Metaphysically, I'll tell you, he's the ultimate reality. And I see him that is invisible to the natural eyes, and I know that he's real. My beloved, do you know he's real today? Then you can endure also and make this choice. When you come to the crossroads of life, I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. Even though it's not popular, it may end with the world's rejection, yet I know the treasures, the riches I will find are far greater than anything this world could offer in return. Moses is our signpost this morning as we stand at the crossroads of life. And he's telling us, here's the choice I made. And this turning point in his life, according to Acts 7.23, came about when it says it came into his heart to visit his brethren. At that point, my beloved, he understood what such a choice would cost him, but he had found richer treasures in Christ. I want to ask you today, are you standing at the crossroads in your life? Has it come into your heart that you truly belong to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you yet realized that the treasure that is to be found in identifying yourself with his despised people in the church is far superior to anything that this world has to offer? Can you sing as we read just a moment ago, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. May you then by faith choose the path of faith, the life of Christian discipleship, and find the true riches that only Zion's children know. By being baptized, uniting with the church in New Testament baptism, and then every day by making the same choice again and again, I'm going to follow Jesus.
You are listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.